Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to look into your word. And so we pray, Lord, by the work of your spirit, that those of us who are yours would mature into the fullness of Christ. We pray, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A lot, a lot of our members here are business owners, or at least were business owners. I know of the Carvettes and their painting business. I have personally had a five-star experience, five experience, this is not a sponsored part, with Boyd Heating and Cooling. I know that there are arborists and contractors here, electricians, farmers, and much more. All entrepreneurs that run a business in a quasi-capitalist Ontario, Canada. There's a little joke in there. Now, others like me <laughs> Now, others like me work for corporations or sole proprietorships, but we all have one goal in mind really, to maximize value. Zappos was a shoe company founded in 1999, some of you know them, others not, later acquired by Amazon. The thing they were known for was customer obsession going out of their way to create a superior customer experience. In one instance, a customer forgot to return their shoes by a cutoff date because of a funeral in the family. The Zappos support agent sent them flowers, and they won a customer for life. Another stayed on the phone with a customer for six hours as she previewed, yes, as she previewed hundreds of shoes online. Their entire business is tuned to create a personal, emotional connection with every customer. Every facet of the business was tuned for one thing and one thing only, a delightful customer experience. What's interesting is that the world has not only figured out what the drivers are for a thriving business, but realized that ultimately delighting the customer brings success. As Christians... Whom do we need to delight? Delighting those seeking or visiting Westmount Bible Chapel? I can say that when we visited, we had a delightful experience and decided to stay. So that's not a bad thing. What about delighting the attendees and members? Because after all, aren't we the customers? We're the ones putting money into the coffers, are we not? We're the one, what are we getting out of it? Better coffee? Better snacks? Validation in our giftedness? What about excellent music or delightful decor? What about the hottest theological topic? What about better choice and variety in worship songs? Hint, hint, Jeremy. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm just joking. The Psalter is excellent. Okay? What about getting our feedback, elders? What about all that worked well in our last church? Why don't we bring it in here? We have forgotten, though, as Christians, that there's only one person that should be delighted seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and he's the only one that matters. If the church is for the glory of God, then the church is all about delighting God. And if every facet of a corporation can be tuned towards delighting what it thinks is important, Then the question arises, how 
can we as Westmount Bible Chapel delight the Lord? So we're going to talk about a delightful church, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 20. I have three points for us today. Imitation, illumination, and adoration. Three points. Imitation, illumination, and adoration. We've been considering God's grand plan in Ephesians. In chapter 1, we see that God is to be praised because he has a grand plan to set all things right in relation to Jesus Christ. All things seen and unseen are being put in their rightful place under Christ. Everything will end up exactly as God designed, and to that end, every molecule is in motion towards that grand plan. Christ will be ruler over everything, and the church is ground zero for this cosmic movement, where the fullness and glory of Christ is displayed. In chapter 2, Paul describes this grand plan, describes that this grand plan's great preview, the trailer, is the church. In the first 10 verses, he describes God's work in making us right with God. We are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in the next 12 verses, he describes God's work in making us right with one another. We access God together as equal partners. Christ is our head, and we, the church, are his body. And because of this, we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, because we have been made right with God. And we can love our neighbors as ourselves, because we've been made right with one another in Christ. The Holy Spirit has made this community the new temple. The residence of God and the rest of this book, the rest of Ephesians, describes the kind of life a made right with God, made right with one another community, filled with the Spirit, will live out. In chapter 3, Paul uses himself as an example to demonstrate how the Spirit of God is forming Christ in this community conforming, shaping our life and persons into the image of Christ. And as a result, the fullness and glory of the Father is realized in the church, and we comprehend the incomprehensible love of God together. In chapter 4, we saw that Paul continues with how Christ has empowered and enabled the church to be a demonstration of God's grand plan. He has given the people of God a new identity, a new man, one that speaks truth, speaks graciously, and builds one another up. A people that shun evil conversations and embrace forgiveness and tenderness toward one another. This is exactly what we have been considering in our Wednesday meetings, right? How do we do justice, demonstrate hesed love, and walk humbly with God? This community is supposed to be the trailer of the grand reveal the kingdom that is coming, the world and universe under the rule and authority of Christ Jesus. And as Jason has taught us, a community with unveiled faces, comprehending the incomprehensible Christ together and shining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the fullness of Christ and of God fills the church. As we move to chapter 5, we'll see that Paul describes in more detail what this preview of a life under Christ's rule looks like. He describes how the community interacts with one another when we are gathered and how the rule of Christ affects even the dynamics in our homes. Christ's rule permeates 
every corner of the church. And God's people are the hot takes, the trailer of the coming kingdom. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, as we consider our first point, imitation, exhibiting deity. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. What should the Ephesian believers imitate? Paul says that God has forgiven us in Christ, and therefore we must imitate God. And that sentence needs to be unpacked. 2,000 years ago, God demonstrated his loving kindness to us by sending his son to die on the cross. We considered the kind of love God expressed towards towards us in chapter 2, the kind that takes rotting, filthy, dead sinners and makes us alive. But at what cost? The cost is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about Hesed in our Wednesday session. God's love demonstrated at his cost for our benefit. And this is what Paul means when he says, be imitators of God as his loving children. Kindness, tenderness, forgiveness as God has forgiven is exercised toward the other at cost to me and to the benefit of the other. And God demands this from us. Why? Because we are his loving children. Since we have been adopted into his family at his cost for our benefit, we are to imitate our father and reproduce his likeness. We find out that imitating God is in fact imitating Christ. Because Paul continues to say that imitating God is a walk of love. Remember how in chapter 2 he said we walked in sin and trespasses, but have been made right with God so that we can now walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand? Remember how Paul in chapter 4 verse 1 urged them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling? He now reconciles the character of God with that of Christ. Imitating God is in fact walking in love as Christ did. And this isn't a love that approves all things. It isn't a love that condones all things or tolerates all things. This is a love that is soaked in the holiness and character of God. All through the scriptures, imitating God translates to holiness. Remember Leviticus? Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The only love that accords with this holiness is a love that desires that its object be holy too. What I mean by this is that Christ's love for us wasn't a love that just approves our sin, come as you are, but it recognized that our sin was in direct contradiction with the holiness of God, and therefore, he did something about it. Christ's love for sinners resulted in his self-sacrificial deaths a death that was a sacrifice and offering to God at his cost and our benefit. Godly love desires this. Godly love desires holiness 
in the thing that it loves. And godly love will sacrifice itself for the holiness of the thing it loves. Godly love desires holiness in the thing that it loves. And godly love will sacrifice itself for the holiness of the thing that it loves. And this is the kind of love that ought to characterize this community. God loves us does not mean that God endorses all that we think, say, or do. God loves us means that God is willing to move us to holiness at cost to himself. And this is the kind of love that each of us at Westmount Bible Chapel ought to be known for. The sacrifice of Christ was a sweet fragrance to the Lord. That's Old Testament language, right? Old Testament language for a pleasing smell, a pleasing aroma. Paul is saying that this kind of walking, a self-sacrificial lifestyle that seeks holiness in the one that it loves, is pleasing to the Lord, even as Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. It is not just pleasing, but it's acceptable. We will see later that not only is it pleasing and acceptable, but it associates itself with an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let's read verse 3 to verse 6, the next next four verses. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. While self-sacrificial love is pleasing to the Lord, Paul points this out, that self-indulgent love is exactly the opposite. Self-indulgent love incurs the wrath of God. Outside of the Jewish bubble, the Jewish bubble obviously governed by the law of God, Gentile society did not frown on what we would think as sexual sins. Paul says, though, that these Ephesian believers must have a clean cut from their previous way of life. And later we will see that he even describes how a married man and a married woman ought to be in this community. How they ought to behave. The one flesh principle from God that has always been from the beginning. The accepted social standard of marriage and sexuality is not a Jewish standard. It is a God-given standard from the beginning of creation and thereby must be what is named in this community. This is not a Christian thing or a Jewish thing. It is a God-given, creator-endorsed thing. He said that a married man and a married woman have a certain kind of lifestyle, and we're going to see what that's going to be in our next sermon. All these things might be normal to the world. In fact, the world might be appalled at it being called wicked. Nonetheless, it should not even be noted or attached in any way with the people of God. The people of God are God's demonstration 
God's trailer, both to heaven and to earth, to invisible and to visible. All these unclean acts, including greed, which is an insatiable desire for more, are the exact opposite of self-sacrificial love. Paul doesn't stop at self-indulgent actions and mindsets. He uses the words filthiness or obscenity, foolish talk and making dirty jokes. And And he says this to refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversations. This kind of conversation may not seem bad to the world. In fact, it didn't seem bad to the world even back then. We have scholarly work that shows that even Aristotle understood that this kind of talk, filthy talk, was a virtue. Dirty jokes were a witty way to make good conversation. Does that sound familiar? It doesn't seem like the world is so different thousands of years later, does it? People think that obscene talk is a way to show their true, raw self. The kind of talk that puts society's guards down. God says, all of this is inappropriate. Whether these actions or the speech, they are inappropriate for a people who have been set apart as holy unto the Lord. Stop listening to comedians that have filthy talk. Stop making excuses for filthy speech when you are angry. Stop watching shows like, I don't know, a few years ago, Game of Thrones, or reality TV like The Bachelor or Bachelorette, or junk like that. Now, don't just filter those three. What I mean to say is, a lot of believers have watched it saying, we're mature, we can handle this. Why would you have a problem with this? In fact, they celebrate it on social media. This is the kind of stuff that the world celebrates. This is the kind of stuff that believers have entertained in their living rooms and on their TVs. Whether it justifies itself as an art or entertainment, this is the way of the ones that perish. This is the way of the ones that perish. Don't participate in it. Don't celebrate it. Don't even entertain the idea of checking it out. In contrast to all of this, in contrast to all the sexual immorality, in contrast to all the obscene speech, stands one distinctive mark of a Christian. And the Bible says that distinctive mark is thanksgiving. While sexual immorality and obscene speech point selfward and feed our desires and egos, thanksgiving points outward, a recognition of God's generous character. It is a recognition that God is the source of all blessing, the source of where we stand today, and therefore, the appropriate response to God's work in creation and salvation. In fact, thanksgiving is the remedy to an immoral life and foolish speech. Think about a life that is utterly thankful to God. What kind of sexual ethic is that person going to have? What kind of things is that person going to talk about? We realize that even though the world may find that lewd talk is humorous and acceptable, this kind of talk should not have a home among the people of God. Westmount Bible Chapel must be characterized as a community where there won't even be a suggestion that evil behavior or crude talk is entertained. Instead, thanksgiving to God, praise and honor to the Lord must be the character of Westmount Bible Chapel. This is exactly how Paul begins the letter of Ephesians. 
God is to be praised. And this is exactly how we resolved to apply that text. Let us seek out ways to praise the Lord. Those who have experienced the grace of God in Christ will respond in praise and thanksgiving to God. Isn't this what Jason talked about last week? Reflecting God's glory with unveiled unveiled faces, being transformed from glory to glory. As we imitate God, our actions and speech point to him. This is the kind of talk that redirects people's attention from the absurdity of our showmanship and from the foolishness of our theatrics. And it points people to what? To the glory of God's divine grace. I absolutely love the leadership at this church. I love them because they pursue holiness. This pursuit of imitating God and shunning all forms or hints of immorality is what characterizes the people who have an inheritance in the kingdom. In verse 5, Paul uses two different words for know. He says it twice. You know knowing. Another way, know for sure. You can be sure of this. That the ones that practice sexual immorality have no inheritance in this kingdom. Why would you practice or why would I practice what they practice? Why would you speak or why would I speak what they speak? The God imitators, the God blessers, the ones that praise God have an inheritance. And for that, we have received the Holy Spirit who is the promise of the inheritance. Therefore, we ought to behave like those who are under the rule of Christ and God. We have to cut ourselves off from the lifestyle and speech of those who are alien to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What this means is that you and I cannot give each other license to practice such things. We cannot give ourselves license to participate with those who have no part in Christ's kingdoms. Christ's kingdom. We are to be holy and pursue holiness as we imitate God. Now, I don't mean cutting ourselves off from these people completely. I mean participating in the things that they participate in. And we're going to see in our later in this passage why it's necessary that we don't cut ourselves off from the world. But it is necessary that we don't partake in the same things that the world partakes in. Those whose lives are characterized by this sinful behavior may claim to be believers. But despite their claims, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The reason Paul admonishes the Ephesian believers is because there is a very, very real possible of lapsing. The reason why Jason keeps pressing us unto holiness is because we are prone to wander back to the old way of life, the way that belongs to the sons of disobedience, the way that has the wrath of God. Remember the two ways that Jeremy taught us about today, the way of life and the way of death? The way of life belongs to the sons of God. The way of death belongs to the sons of disobedience, the ones on whom the wrath of God rests. So what does this mean with regards to inheritance? The danger is that it will affect our status and rewards in the kingdom that is coming. While all believers are inheritors in the kingdom of God, not all are rewarded equally. Returning to the old ways, the paths of death, the paths of darkness, the paths of wrath has effects 
on your rewards in the kingdom that is coming. So even if I stand here and preach this morning, and I choose to turn away and embrace a life of sexual immorality and impurity, it doesn't matter what I claim. My lifestyle would then be aligned with those who do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. There is no middle ground in this world. You either have an inheritance in the kingdom or you don't. You either belong to God or you don't. And those of us that claim to be believers ought to imitate God in seeking holiness and self-sacrificial love. We ought to shun sexual immorality, greed, and filthy talk. There are only two paths, the path of life and the path of death. While imitation was how God's people exhibited deity, illumination is how God's people expose darkness. Let's read verses Uh, 7 to uh, to 10. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruits of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul now continues to use darkness and light. Again, only two ways. Life or death, darkness or light, wrath or God's pleasure. He illustrates the Ephesians' old allegiances and the new ones that they've been brought into. And that is the case for us too as believers here in Peterborough. It was not too long ago for many of us that we were in darkness. We couldn't and wouldn't live a life of obedience to God. Paul goes as far to say that unbelievers are darkness and believers are light darkness wasn't just the environment that we were in it was the very life inside of us that is what paul meant in chapter 2 when he said that we walked according to the age or course of this world the prince of the power of the air darkness is the very dominion and power of satan and his spirits light however is the dominion of God. And we see that this kind of life is not just the environment, but the very DNA of the new life that we have been given as believers. Therefore, as children of light, we are light in the Lord. What this means is that we don't need anything special really to belong to darkness. But to be light, we need to be united with Christ. This change in identity is because of our union and because of the Ephesian believers' union with Christ. And this change of identity demands a change in behavior. This new identity cannot be in partnership with the old ways of living. And that's why Paul says, do not become partners with them. We cannot participate in filthy talk and a self-indulgent lifestyle if we are children of light. The new identity is formed because it is exposed to the light and therefore walks according to the light. And so scripture says, walk as children of light. If this walk is characterized in verse, this walk is characterized in verse 9 as the fruit of light. And this fruitfulness is contrasted with the works of darkness. And we're going to see that later in verse 11. This fruitful life is the light, this fruitful life in the light has goodness. When we think of goodness or good, we have to think of the good works that God has prepared beforehand in chapter 2. 
It is a new kind of life that imitates God in selfless love. Then we see the word righteous. Righteousness is the kind of life that does what is right according to the law of the Lord. Having been made right with God, we do what God wants us to do. When you see the word truth, truth is the kind of speech that characterizes our community, a gospel-speaking community. The only truth that matters, right, is the truth of the gospel, and and we declare that and we speak that to one another. So if we are to imitate God in selfless love, honor God's word by following his laws and constantly communicate the truth of the gospel, we will be fruitful as children of light. The Christian walk might be hard, but it's not complicated. The problem is that the simplicity of this walk in the light contradicts the kind of life that we used to lead and the kind of life that the world leads. This is simple. What's complex is twisting the truth to justify an immoral life in darkness, right? But what's simple is living in the light. The simplicity of the Christian life can be found in the simplicity of the character of Christ. As light, that is exactly what his life looked like. Self-sacrificial good works, righteous life that followed the laws of God, and the declaration of the gospel of God. And in imitating Christ, we bear fruit in the light. And the end of verse 10 unlocks part of the answer to our question today. The kind of lifestyle as a community is what is pleasing to the Lord. A kind of lifestyle that does good, is righteous, and... Anyone want to say anything? No. One that does good, is righteous, and... Well, I'm sorry. And... um... I'm I'm drawing blank. Wow. Um... And, the, and speaks the truth of the gospel. I'm sorry. Is good, is righteous, and speaks the truth of the gospel. This is what brings delight to the Lord. There is more that happens. Pleasing the Lord doesn't just have a vertical benefit. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, we said that God has made us right with him. In the same way, pleasing the Lord makes us right with him, but pleasing the Lord also has a horizontal benefit. Its benefit is towards other people. And let's read verse 13 to 14. Verse 13 to 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. If anything, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now this seems enigmatic. And some of you might even turn to your Old Testament to look for this verse. But it's not an Old Testament quote. Let's unpack this enigma and make it simple, and then we'll look at where it probably could have come from. When a believer who used to live in darkness becomes light because we are united with Christ, we start sharing a lifestyle, a righteous lifestyle with God's people. The righteous lifestyle exposes the works of darkness for what they are. And this is very close language to what Jason also taught us last week. The people of God reflecting the glory of God. There's something more that happens. Transformation takes place. Those in darkness, those in death, have the light of Christ shining on them through the righteous life of believers. 
That is when we live and love sacrificially, at our cost, to move others to holiness, also called goodness. When we live according to the law of the Lord, submitting to him, also called righteousness, and when we declare the gospel, also called truth, we shed the light of Christ on those sleeping in darkness and enables them to see the nature of their deadness. God uses the fruitful lives of the children of light to help others abandon the darkness of sin and respond to light so that they also become light. God uses the children of light to expose darkness and transform sinners from darkness to light. Now, we talked about where this quote comes from, and it's not a quote from the Old Testament. It's most probably a baptismal hymn. And this hymn reminds the church of many things. First, it believes that, it, it, it reminds the church that each and every believer is summoned by God. We're summoned by God to awaken from spiritual death and turn from our old way of living and turn to a new way of living. In responding to the summons and the light of Christ, which shines on us and saves us, we are to live a new life of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those of us that have attended or been part of our baptism class would know that that's exactly what happens at baptism, shunning the old way of life and looking forward to a new way of life, a pledge to a new way of life. In doing so, they shine or we shine Christ's light on a dark world so that the lives of others are changed as well. I'm pretty sure that none of us here was saved by a supernatural appearance of God or an angel in our rooms, right? It was through the light giving life and gospel proclamation of God's children that we heard the gospel, believed, and were saved. And it's exactly this that Paul is driving to. The fruitfulness of walking in the light doesn't just delight God, but it exposes darkness because the light of Christ shines on it and transforms the sleeping dead and makes them children of light. Now, in contrast to this life of light that delights God, Paul also highlights the unfruitful works of darkness that brings about the wrath of God. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We just talked about the danger of lapsing, right? Paul makes it clear in verse 6 that it is easy for believers to be influenced by a world of darkness. Therefore, many things that are acceptable out there become acceptable in here, especially in the realm of sexual morality. We cannot listen to the reason that unbelievers give for why both they and believers must keep practicing the ways of darkness, sexual immorality, filthy talk, and greed. They make arguments, but Paul warns that these are hollow arguments that have only one outcome, the wrath of God. Think about the contrast of outcomes, the wrath of God versus an inheritance in the kingdom of God. The two kinds of people couldn't be any more opposite. And for this reason, beloved, do not be deceived by any argument that tries to convince you that living a life that is not aligned with holiness can be right in any way. This is the argument that started in the garden. And for the last six millennia, God's people have been deceived by this logic. 
imitating God in holiness, submitting to the lordship of Christ through scripture, and declaring the truth of the gospel is the character of those that have an inheritance in the kingdom. Sexual immorality, filthy talk, and greed characterize those that live under God's wrath. Darkness will try to reason you, will try to argue its way, will try to philosophize you into partnering in unfruitful works. Beware. Let's read verse 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The right response to empty philosophy and arguments is to press into holy living. It is to press into sacrificial love. It is to press into living in obedience to God's word. It is to press into declaring the truth of the gospel. And you know what this does? What this does is it exposes the works of darkness. These works are so bad, it says that they do it in secret. Imagine imagine having to hide your sexual perversions and sinful life from a Greco-Roman society that has no moral standards anywhere near that of Scripture. But Paul doesn't want to draw our attention anymore to these works. What he wants is for God's people to shine the light of Christ. And in doing so, even secret sins will be exposed. And we've seen this. We've seen this in our lives. We've seen this in our community. It's important because people, when they get transformed by the gospel, even the sins that nobody knows will come out as they repent and turn to Christ. This is the only means by which darkness is really exposed in this age. Before the coming of Christ, the gospel shines into darkened hearts, awakens them from the death of sleep, and exposes sin for what it is, even hidden sins. We often think of our Christian walk as individuals. This is between me and God. We forget that as a community of children of light, every aspect needs to be tuned to one thing alone. We as a community need to bear fruit to delight the the God who saved us at cost to himself and for our benefit. Much more in being fruitful in the light, we also continue to do the work of God, exposing darkness and participating in the transformation of individuals from darkness to light. The community of God is where these individuals now learn to live a life that imitates God. This community is where these individuals submit to righteous living. And this community is where these individuals learn to declare the truth of the gospel. Fruitful lives please God. They delight God. And fruitful lives transform the darkness of the world to the light of Christ. We saw how God's people exhibit deity through imitation. Expose darkness with illumination. Now let's turn to our third point, expressing devotion through adoration. Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 20. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we come across the word walk. So we know that Paul is talking about the lifestyle that is fitting or befitting the children of God, the children of light. He uses the words look or watch and carefully. And he's talking about the accuracy and precision, as well as the urgency with which a believer should live a godly life. You see the word wisdom. It's appeared many times in Ephesians, and it's closely associated with the word mystery. It has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit helping believers understand God's grand plan. God's grand plan, although it's revealed, is a complete mystery to those whom the Holy Spirit doesn't illuminate. In our study of Exodus, we saw the word wisdom. It was used with regards to the sculptors, with regards to the metal workers in the temple. They needed wisdom or skill that the Spirit of God gives to do the work of God. So also in Ephesians, comprehending God's plan and living according to that plan requires a special work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. This is contrasting the wise from the unwise. The unwise live as though God doesn't exist. And even if he did, he doesn't really have a plan. The unwise have no comprehension of God's purposes that he fulfills in Christ. All through scripture, the wise and the unwise, wisdom and folly are contrasted this way. Those that know the Lord and his ways are wise and they live accordingly. Those that refuse God are unwise and they live accordingly. The wise demonstrate that there is perception of God's ways and that he has declared and demonstrated it to his people. And as a result, the wise also have the right attitude towards time. When we see this word, God's will, discerning God's will, this phrase, it's not a focus on a personal map for the future. What is God's will for me? But when he says discern God's will, what he means is discern God's work to save and to form and to shape his people into the likeness of Christ, so that Christ can present us blameless and pure on the last day. That is the will that we have to discern. The wise, the believer, understands that time is limited because God's grand plan is going to be consumed. And we also have a finite lives. So believers will use every opportunity that comes our way to do the work of God. Because we know that this present evil age is dominated by Satan and his cronies. And this will all pass away into the new age. The wise person will conduct themselves in goodness, righteousness, and truth with every available opportunity. Believers do not have to fear the evil one that controls this present age. We just have to act wisely because we know the plans and purposes of God and he's planned them for the ages. In keeping with the contrast between wisdom and foolishness, with the wise and unwise, Paul also says that being controlled by wine is the way of darkness. Remember that there are only two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of 
the way of wisdom and the way of light, the way of foolishness and the way of darkness. The way of wisdom is life, the way of foolishness is death. The foolish people who do not understand the ways of God are those also who get drunk, because that is the way of the world. In contrast, the wise people, believers, the community of people who know the plans and purposes of God are filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit of God should be understood with the earlier references. Being filled with the fullness of Christ and being filled with the fullness of God. The church shares in the fullness of Christ in chapter 1 and verse 23. And yet, the ascended Christ gives gifts to the church so that the church matures to the fullness of Christ, chapter 4, verse 13. Paul prays in chapter 3, verse 19, that the church in Ephesus may be full, filled to all the fullness of God. We saw that the idea of fullness refers to the glory of the Lord filling the tent of meeting or filling the tabernacle. The presence and authority of God realized more and more in the church. So it is filling that so it is fitting that Paul completes this Trinitarian formula because the third person of the Trinity too fills the church. And the church is to allow the presence and working of the Spirit to have influence in the body rather than being drunk with wine. The end purpose of all the filling is that as the authority of God fills every aspect of the local church, the people of God are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Hence, we can imitate God and imitate Christ. If drunkenness is the characteristic of the person filled with wine, then verse 19 is the characteristic of the community that is increasingly filled with the Spirit of God. The local church can praise the triune God, and we saw this in chapter 1, and remind one another about what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the thanksgiving that God imitators will have in the church. The praise and the thanksgiving of the community is directed both horizontally and vertically. We remind one another about these truths as we direct our praise and our worship to the Lord. Therefore, it's important that the songs we sing are theologically correct and rich because we don't just sing it to the Lord, we sing it to one another. What we sing is what we remind one another as we worship the triune God. This thanksgiving or adoration will be a regular practice for a spiritful community. Thanking the Father in the name of the Son for all that the Father has lavished on us. That, that is why we gather regularly and we also sing regularly. So that we can corporately and individually thank God with our minds and our hearts. This is what delights God. A spirit-filled community that adores God the Father for his plans and purposes through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is based on the work of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast with a life of wisdom, believers are also warned, you and I are warned against a life of folly. Let's read verse 15 to 18 again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A life of the foolish is completely unaware about the plans and purposes of God. It is one that looks at the sons of disobedience and 
ignoring the will of God because they live in ignorance of the ignorance of the will of God, a foolish person imitates the children of wrath. So Paul constantly contrasts this self-indulgent behavior like drunkenness with the selfless love of God. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will adore God because of his selfless love. The children of foolishness live in this present age as though it'll keep going and it'll keep going and it'll keep going. They live as though Satan has a chance. Maybe, maybe he'll win. And the problem is that many of us join us in their folly. You may be here today not having trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. You may be hearing for this for the first time. Or you may be here having this, heard this so many times that you don't even remember how many times you've heard it. But here are the facts. God says that you are separated from him and that your destiny is destruction away from him. By birth, you are paired with the God of this world, Satan. He entices you to, to do what you already desire to do. And since his time is up, yours is too. God is rich in mercy and grace and has, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, made a way for your rescue from death to life. Much more, God can transform your life from loving sin to loving holiness and godliness, which is goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we here that you see up on stage, or even those that are going to be here to help with prayer, or even those that greeted you this morning, would be more than happy to share God's message of light with you. Believers, we need to beware our lack of adoration for the triune God in our midst. This doesn't always look like what we think it looks like. It might be giving into sin just this once. It might be skipping a meeting of the local church because we just don't feel like it. Adoration personally and as a community is the result of being filled with the Spirit. We ask the question today, how can we delight God as a community? The answer is that we as a church imitate Him in holiness, we practice righteousness, we declare the truth, we are filled with the Spirit and adore Him corporately. So now here arises the question, how am I going to live a life of adoration? So for the next seven days, just for the next seven days, I hope to commit to attend all the meetings that I can this week so that I can worship God with his people and speak of his faithfulness and goodness in Christ Jesus. That's how I plan to adore the Lord together with his people. God is delighted when we imitate him, when we exhibit his character, his attributes in selfless love. God is delighted when we illuminate with Christ's light, exposing darkness. God is delighted when we adore him, expressing devotion to him as we are filled with the Spirit of God as a community, together reminding one another and blessing the Father based on the work of the Son. May God enable and bless you to do his work and adore him this week.